Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life, and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. I sat down today with Shalina Ayaya. She is a mother and the author of the book, Becoming the One. And I just love this book because I think that Shalina does an incredible job of really charting the healing journey as an individual. The book is about coming home to oneself. And it speaks of early conditioning and her own early conditioning that she had and the wounds that came out of that, the mother wound, abandonment wound, and the book really dives into, in such a clear way, the path to reclaiming that wholeness, going into the body, getting to know one's own nervous system. She uh, talks about having dates with oneself, that ultimately, if we're looking outside of ourselves for love, approval, energy, that we're just going to be in unhealthy power dynamics in our relationships. So she also talks about tracking the mind and our thoughts and the difference between a thought and truth. And how do we begin to know the difference so that we can stand in our truth and our power? I loved this conversation. Shalina is just so natural. And at one point she had to get up and nurse her precious baby. We uh, speak about motherhood and some of the tensions that, that have come with it, the deep grief, and also the deep grief about now looking back at her mother and the relationship that she had with her mother that she has healed, but just kind of the fact that her mother had a really difficult time when Shalina was born. She was trapped in addiction and negativity, and they both had some real traumas in their lives. So this is such a beautiful conversation with Shalina, and I highly recommend her book. Welcome to today's episode of The Psychedelic Mom. I am here today with Shalina Ayana, who I am so excited to talk to. How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm sleepy, but I'm, I'm alive and grateful. So welcome here today. Where are you in the country? I live on Salt Spring Island in BC, Canada. So we're a tiny little island in between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. So you wrote this incredible book that I was diving into, and I was just talking to you about it. I love this book. It's called Becoming the One. And actually, when I first saw the title, I actually thought it was about something different. I was thinking that, you know, when we go through kind of these earth medicine journeys, becoming the one, almost as the cosmic joke that we are all the one. Originally, that's what I thought the book was about. 
And then as I dove into it, it really is about becoming the one in your own life and healing deep relational wounds, which is so essential. So let's dive into your book a little bit and talk about what brought you here, some your own childhood wounding. We were talking about the mother wound and your own process of healing. It sounds like you went on a seven-year journey and wrote this book and came into full alignment to yourself and now are in a conscious partnership. And I'm sure then that leads into also how you're parenting. So let's talk about how you got here a little bit. Well, as it talks about in my book, and as I feel like I've shared so much before, all of the culmination of my work is just because of my upbringing. It's because of my childhood that I'm here. And so prefacing that all of the things that I've gone through, I feel very grateful for now, though they weren't so wonderful in the, in the present moment when I was in them. My mom had me when she was 22, which is not so young. Cognitively, maybe she was 10, 12 years old. She came from a lot of abuse. Like we're talking horrific stories, things that I don't share. And so, you know, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, she was a kid with really absolutely no idea what it meant to be in relationship at all. And I never met my father. So right away, there was this, this lack, this missing piece for me. And, uh, we had a really tough time. We had a really tough time. My mom really struggled with addiction. She struggled greatly with her mental health. And so, you know, she had to be in and out of the hospital to, to survive and I was in and out of foster homes. And by the time I hit 12, I became what they call ward of the government. And so they were my legal guardians. So I really didn't have that figure, those figures in my life anymore that felt protective. It felt that mm-hmm. there was this sort of elusive, imaginary governing force that made decisions for my life, but had no care for who I actually was. And so by the time I was 16, I just moved out onto my own and, um, I had already experienced drug addiction. You know, I was addicted to crystal meth when I was 14 years old and running with street kids. And I think I was 12 years old when my, my allowance, when I was 12, I was just laughing about this with some friends the other day was a pack of cigarettes and a two-liter bottle of Grower's Apple Cider Cooler. At one point in your book, you speak of this moment where you're on the floor in the bathroom with your mother, that she had kind of this nightly routine of being out, and you're super young. How old were you, like two? Yeah, two or three, and she was really deep into drinking at that point, and so there were a lot of times where I was alone, and... There were times where she would come home and she would be quite sick. And so she would be on the bathroom floor and I'd get a little cookie sheet and line it with toothbrush and toothpaste and a face cloth and all of the things. And, you know, I'd want to take care of her. So when you were just talking about your allowance, at what age did you go into foster care system? And was that allowance by a given to you by a foster parent? No, that was my mom. So I lived in and out with my mom until I was 12. So there were years where I would live with her and then there were breaks where I would be in foster care in and out, in and out. Um, And then when I was 12, 
in the middle of that year, that's when I went fully into permanent care. But prior to that, that was that had been my allowance. And, you know, my mom just really, really struggled, you know, so much. And uh, I'm surprised and grateful that she's alive. She had attempted suicide so many times that I really didn't ever imagine she'd be alive by the time I was 18. You know, and now I'm 35 and, and my mom is alive. And I... I'm realizing how much I'm having to almost reopen my heart, how much I've had to reopen and peel off those scabs that I created to sort of be numb to whether or not she was here because now she is here. And we can talk about that whole healing process later, but it's just been really wild to go on a journey so deep with with my own mother and to see her suffering, but it's made a lot of sense for me, you know, why my life was the way that it was because she just had no compass at all. So the fact that I'm here, that I even am alive is such a blessing. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think, wow, this is so much wisdom for a woman your age. And we were talking before we started that you've really done an amazing job of kind of charting one's own personal healing journey to themselves, that deep coming home to self. And then how that really, a lot of healing also happens within relationship. And this is a lot of ways, a book about a relationship to self, but then how we show up in relationships with these deep wounds. So let's just talk a little bit about the mother wound, because it is, it's a wound that many of us have. I see it all the time in my work and holding space for clients, this deep wound of the mother and even really incredible mothers still, there's really no perfect way of not at some point creating some wound. And now that you're a mother, whoa, let's get into this mother conversation. Yeah. Ouch. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing that I'm realizing too, is the, the weight of motherhood and not even the society's weight of what society expects or what they put on us to be. It's really, for me at least, it's definitely self-induced pressure to be this perfect mother, to never lose my cool, you know, to never snap at my husband in front of my daughter, you know, because I don't want to destroy her relationship patterns and to just have everything be perfect. And it's not been perfect. I've not been perfect. I can't be perfect. And um, those are moments of pain for me, but also such a good reality check that we don't, as mothers, often give ourselves permission to be human. And it's so difficult at least as a new mom in the beginning, in that first year, to find any space to feel your own feelings, especially because, you know, I'm doing my best not to process anything in front of her or to impact her nervous system by processing it on her. It's interesting because there's all this like new, new wisdom out there for all of us really to tap into how we co-regulate each other's nervous systems trauma, this language around trauma has become, it's everywhere. And in some ways, it's so incredibly helpful on so many levels, because we have a deep understanding of our need to process our own emotion. 
and not to put it on a child. But in a lot of ways, I think what you're speaking to is the extra pressure, that awareness of how trauma is formed in those early, early years puts now on a mother. It's like an extra field of like, you know, not to step on anything. Yeah. Christian Northrup, if you know her, you know, mother-daughter wisdom and She's written a lot of beautiful books on this, and she's talking about this before we actually even really were scientifically studying the nervous system, and she was talking about this kind of stuff before it was trendy. I think in one of her books, I think it was Mother Daughter Wisdom, she was talking about how in utero, a mother's stress impacts the unborn baby and how they can actually take on that stress and that imprint, and uh, I think that's definitely been true for me in my journey. But even in my studies, I've studied and trained in a lot of somatic work for the last four years or so. And what I've learned is that we absolutely do co-regulate and we need each other for that. And when we're very dysregulated and we touch another person, we have the capacity to dysregulate them. And that might not be such a challenge or a problem if we're with a partner and we're really, really dysregulated and we need a hug or we need somebody else to come in and help us ground. But when it's our baby, that's where it changes. And so I do my best, but of course there are moments where I'm feeling a lot and I have to nurse her and then we do end up just fine. But it's these little moments of humanity where we're like, okay, Things aren't going to be perfect and we're all still going to be okay. And none of us gets out of this life without something. And all we can do is our best. But it's been heavy for me at times to to be with that. Big initiation, huh? Motherhood? Uh, It's such a big one. Yeah, it's such a big one. I know that earth medicines and psychedelics have been part of your healing journey. How would you say motherhood is like a psychedelic? To me, it's the most potent psychedelic. And I mean, I've sat with ayahuasca more than two dozen times. I've worked with almost every plant medicine that there is. And oof, motherhood. Motherhood is the spiritual journey. And it's the most beautiful devotional path that I've ever said yes to. I'm so happy that I did. I love it. And I am treating it like that. So that those really hard moments and those really exhausting nights, which I'm currently in, again, can be teachers for me. And it's an invitation to practice more patience. It's an invitation to practice more presence and to not wish any of these phases away. It's like a true surrender process, which I've honestly, in in plant medicine worlds, I've never been that good at. And so it's been really beautiful to be in this space in motherhood and feel like I'm in that void with her and just amplifying love. If psychedelics reveal our truth and soul, what would you say so far motherhood has revealed about you, both the sacred aspects, but also shadow aspects that you're hitting? Ultimately, the the true revelation, if you could call it that, is just this is the purpose of life. This is the meaning of life. And in our world, we've really discounted that. We've really made life about goals and success and money and capitalism and achievement and not about family. And 
what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing and what I've been experiencing even prior to having a daughter was that community and family, they are the achievement. They are the success. They're the thing that weaves us all together and that we carry with us. There's nothing else that we carry with us. At least that's not what I believe. I believe, you know, when we reincarnate or we, we die and we go to another realm, our soul family travels with us. Our bank account doesn't, you know, our books don't, our podcast doesn't, but our soul family, we find those people over and over and over again. And so to me, anything other than that, that's just the surrounding environment, but everything about the relationship is what matters most. And, uh, you know, I don't quite know in terms of the shadow yet. I think I'm still really in the honeymoon phase of it. I think it's really just what I touched on before, which is that there's no such thing as perfection. (laughs) And there's a deep desire in many of us to be perfect. And that in itself is a shadow because we're limiting ourselves from even just showing and modeling for our children that it's okay to make mistakes, right? Okay, so what you were just talking about, this idea that when we go beyond here, and even while we're here, we're in these soul tribes, and in that come the deep lessons of life, and maybe when we leave this life, what karma isn't finished yet, or karmic knots that we have with people, or some of this relational wounding possibly we take with us, and I always think like two of the greatest lessons is to be in right relationship with our power and to be in right relationship with love. But one aspect of that is a lot of what your book talks about. We can be unconscious on so many levels of the ways in which we are not in right relationship with love to ourselves, to another, and even with our power. So let's talk a little bit about how those deep wounds of your childhood then manifested and became the outpicturing of your life And then the healing journey to wholeness and this idea that unless we first come home to self, we really perpetuate those wounds out in the world. It's so true. What we are conditioned with early on, it takes a lot to move that out of the nervous system. It takes a lot to heal that. And my knowing, my modeling, everything that I learned and saw about relationship was chaotic was aggressive, was abusive, was confrontational, defensive. I did not learn how to speak from love. I didn't learn how to ask for help. I didn't learn to show that I was hurt. I learned to fight ultimately, and that's about it. And I learned to mask. And so I carried that with me through all of my relationships. I had a series of abusive experiences even in my earliest relationships like we're talking like 14 years old like my all of my early relationships were unsafe because I just didn't know because that was what was familiar yeah and uh you know might be nice to talk about how all of these things can come up in pregnancy later too because that's another whole other psychedelic journey but by the time I was 19 That's when I found myself in that climax of all of the conditioning. And I ended up in a really abusive relationship with somebody who I'm really lucky, honestly, to have survived. It was quite violent. And at this point, were you having your own addiction issues as well? 
I had moved through that. So I was really addicted to crystal meth when I was 14. And I actually moved through that addiction at that time, like that year. It was, it only lasted about a year, thankfully. For some reason, I've had this ability throughout my life to become very addicted to things and then to just wake up one day and decide that I'm done. I'm not sure what that's about genetically, but thankfully I was able to move through that. I did have a cannabis addiction actually when I was 19 now that I think about it. Just seems so much more mild than than the other stuff. Well, I think too also people don't really talk about cannabis addiction. I think even today, you know, I think oh, there are a lot of people addicted to cannabis that don't actually see it as an addiction. How did you know it was? Oh, well, I was, my boyfriend and I, we were staying up all night long playing video games and smoking pot, and that's all we did. And I was high all the time, morning to night, which is so crazy because I literally cannot even smell the stuff now. I haven't tested this theory out. I think I tried cannabis the last time Ben and I were like, we were living in Vancouver still, it was like, six years ago or something and took the smallest amount. And I basically had an ayahuasca journey. (laughs) You know how it is once you've sat with the medicine enough, it's everything, anything induces that. I noticed when, you know, even in serving medicine now, I feel it. I don't take it, but I feel whatever medicine they're on. It's so strange. Very powerful. It is. Yeah. But I was, I was not in this crystal meth addiction or something that's really obvious. It's just sort of this socially accepted addiction. So what started, what was the kind of, what ignited this healing path and how did you, yeah, how did you find the support that you needed and go, you know, even to know to go into the deep wounds of the child and to rewire your brain and relational patterns? What brought you there? There was still many more lessons to be had. After I left that relationship, I ended up in another unsafe relationship. And then I met somebody. I went through this phase where I had this sort of awakening, but I was probably 20, 21. And I had this awakening and it was a layer of consciousness opening for me, but it wasn't the final layer. Not that I'm enlightened, just saying many more layers have opened. For me, fortunately, it just is a very spontaneous thing. So you had a spontaneous awakening around 20. Spontaneous, where all of a sudden I was getting all of these visions, really beautiful messages from spirit telling me what to do and where where to go and who to surround myself by. And I was just high on life, just full of joy and empowerment to change my life. And then I did a year of celibacy and I got really into crystal healing and and all of that stuff. And I felt like, you know, now I'm healed, uh, but I had not done any work on my childhood wounds. I hadn't looked at my history at all. I hadn't felt my feelings. I was doing the new age spirituality that's, you know, oh, bring a crystal home and, and now you're spiritual. Say these positive affirmations. Yeah. Watch your mind, which, you know, was great. I learned about observing my mind. I think I learned about that from, you know, Dr. Nathaniel Brandon's work and a bit of Tony Robbins. And I thought, wow, what a concept to watch and observe my mind rather than believe every thought I think. Who would have imagined that? And so, you know, for that whole year, you know, 2021, I was just doing that. So I was in that first layer. And after that year of celibacy, I met somebody and we had this really intense draw to each other. And I didn't even find him attractive, but I couldn't 
not be with him. And so we ended up together for many years and it was quite a relationship. It was, we were so young and immature, so much projection, both of us deep mother wounds, just flailing in that relationship. And uh, we ended up getting married because he was from another country. And of course, you know, there wasn't a romantic story around. He didn't like propose and we, we were like, oh, let's be married and, and build a, a marriage and have a family. It was more, how do we stay in the same country together so that we can actually be in relationship? And so that relationship was the thing that pulled it all out for me, <laughs> pulled the rug out from underneath me and woke me up because I had not been vulnerable in that relationship at all. Totally unwilling to do any sort of vulnerability work totally unwilling to go there with him. And I just didn't feel inspired. He wasn't my person. So I didn't want to do the work with him and that's okay. But there was a lot of unconscious behavior to put it lightly between the two of us. We just weren't in our power at all with each other. And when that ended, he left for another person and I sort of lost everything at the same time. It was My cat ran away my business was taken down. I lost all my money. My partner left with another woman who I knew she was a friend of ours. And at the same time, then I gained like 30 pounds in a month and my, all my hormones shut down. I just got sick. Like my whole being was sick. And I remember I was chasing him out of the house cause he had come to get some stuff and I was running after him to her car and he got in the car and he drove away and I felt this panic flush through my body. And then I got this message that this was not about him at all. I had this vision of when I was three and my mom had dropped me off at a foster home late at night. She hadn't told me that I was being dropped off at a foster home. She just packed me up and put me in the car and took me and then left. And so I was having this flashback and I was seeing myself kicking and screaming, crying for her. And then spirit just said, this isn't about him. And this is about you and your mother wound. This is about you and your inner child. You have work to do. And I felt relieved because it meant that I didn't need him. <laughs> it meant that I didn't need him to come back to save me. I had to do this work myself, which while daunting was very, very liberating because I knew that I could get through this really painful time. And that's how it started. And that's what put me on the path of doing deep mother work, transpersonal therapy, uh, working with psychedelics. I had worked with DMT quite a lot and I had worked with mushrooms just a little bit, but after that, that's when I really began diving in. I can imagine that just that moment running out to the car, the intense fire that you must have felt in your body, just the reprising of the childhood memory. How did you, were earth medicines part of the path of beginning to feel all the deep emotion and move some of that energetically out of your body or what were psychedelics for you? At first, I started with breath work, which is a free psychedelic. So I was doing mother work uh, with a transpersonal therapist, and I was doing breath work. And that was really intense, and it was beautiful. I was also working on my own with DMT, which is a part of the molecule of ayahuasca. And that was really bringing me into deep self-acceptance. And I truly, I had been working with DMT for years prior. Like, I had been working with DMT since... I met that other person, but it was just giving me small teachings. It was showing me parts of myself that weren't authentic to my essence, 
it was introducing me to my shadow, but in such a gentle, beautiful way. I had had such a beautiful guide on this journey. And so I'm very grateful for that. And uh, then I started doing hape. And so we started doing ceremonies. And that was very heart opening for me to sit in circle, sit with the fire and pray and to cry and to offer up things that I was ready to release into the fire. And that I found to be very, very healing on the journey. And who are you doing this with? You, did you have a circle of women? Where was this work being done by the fire and hop in? Uh, yeah, well, a lot of the, you know, the DMT stuff I was just doing on my own. But the the hoppe ceremonies, I was, I had a home. So I was hosting in my home. I wasn't serving, but I would invite facilitators to come in and we would have circles with the community and I would have a fire in my in my home later on when Ben and I got together we began doing ceremony with curanderos and uh, more working with ayahuasca in particular or going to huichol peyote ceremonies and um, those were really authentically run and uh, those are like very 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 deep deep journeys but some of this other stuff, working with hape, you know, a lot of people, they work with hape every day by themselves. They just wake up and they, they sit with it. It's, it's kind of a light experience. It's not. Yeah, I did for like a one summer, just kind of a dieta with hape. It is. It's very light, very grounding, beautiful medicine. Now I find it way too intense. I, I don't really work with any medicines anymore. If I were to do a dieta, it would be with something really subtle uh, I feel really called to working with rose. I love rose and I love flowers. I love the idea of the subtle plants. And I think sometimes after you've had these multiple experiences with psychedelics, I don't know if it's like you don't need the medicine anymore. I've even questioned recently, is something going on on the planet? Because I think, you know, it's Einstein that said you can't fix a problem with the same level of consciousness that created the problem. And I'm even noticing where it almost seems like this portal of what we might have needed medicine for to see in the unconscious, like kind of like this consciousness portal might have been this big and we might have needed medicine to break open to see more. I'm noticing like people accessing the deep shadow, greater awareness and consciousness without medicine, just doing guided internal body, body work. It's pretty powerful. Well, in our younger generation, I don't know how old you are. I'm probably younger than you. Oh, yes. I'm 50s. Okay, you're looking great. Um, (laughs) It's so funny how, you know, when you're younger, you think, you know, 30 and 50 is old. And now here we all are. And it's not even, we're not even close, right? We're just, just beginning. Life is just beginning. Well, it's interesting. I read your book and I'm like, how does she have so much wisdom at 35? I did not have that wisdom. What I'm experiencing now is, you know, I have these young women around me who are 25 and I'm thinking, gosh, you are so wise. I was just a mess when I was 25, you know, and something's going on. (laughs) They're just changing. And young people now are so wise. I mean, they're just bringing some special medicine, even my daughter, there's a whole generation being born right now. A lot of my friends' kids, and they're all these little star babies. I know my daughter was conceived through prayer and ceremony. And in that ceremony, two other couples all conceived from that ceremony. And 
these beings are powerful. They're here to make a difference and to help heal. But there is a theory that I have, and I noticed that some people really need that more intense medicine to break them through, like you're talking about. I needed it. I think my ego construct was so tight, my conditioning, and all of this languaging wasn't really out there. I mean, so much has changed even in the last five years. And I definitely needed strong doses of medicine to be able to go into the shadow. And, and some of us just need strong doses to get through to the spirit world. For example, my husband on the ayahuasca path, it's definitely his path. And I love watching him change as he goes to ceremony and comes home. And as inconvenient as it can be sometimes because he needs to go away to ceremony, especially now that we have a daughter. You know, if he were to say today, I'm going away for seven days to do ceremony, I would say go. If he was like to going to go away for anything else for seven days, I'd be like, what? But because it's so his medicine and it just brings him deeper into himself, it's something that I deeply support. And he's a very intense man. He's very solar, very focused, very intuitive and spiritual as well, but just more, I don't know how to even describe it, but less in the spirit world. Let's just say that. Whereas I'm in the spirit world, you know, I'm talking to my spirit babies and I'm receiving messages all day. And so when I think about taking ayahuasca, it's taking me so far into the spirit world when I'm that it's so disorienting. I'm seeing everything, I'm feeling everyone, I'm just so overwhelmed. It's blasting open my channels. I don't actually need that. I'm here to just work on honing that connection to spirit that I have through subtleties, through just being in the forest. Whereas for him, He's not having that experience. And so even when he's working with ayahuasca or working with a psychedelic, he's not going to the same place that I am. And it's actually really good for him. And so it's also about knowing ourselves and knowing what we actually need. And for me, I had to realize at some point it stopped being about me having my own experience and it started being about me just wanting to share a ceremony with him. And that's when I had to step out because that's not a good reason to go, you know, as as beautiful as it is. I was like, okay, it's time for me to step out and uh, for me to just support you on this path. But we're all so different and it's good to know because if we go into the medicine from that place of just wanting to try it or experience it, and or wearing it as some sort of badge of honor you know we can really mess ourselves up so we have to be really gentle and respectful i think it's really interesting too one of the things you're pointing to which is in your book is really the ability to hold your own boundary to know intuitively what is right for you there you were doing medicine at a point to be in relationship with your husband but also feeling like i don't need this actually And just holding that boundary of what you needed and being able to say that and not do something, kind of not abandon yourself for the connection that might have happened during ayahuasca. So when you support women in this process of awakening to their inner child, their mother wounds, What would some examples be that you would give somebody of how to know when they are not in their own power and aligned to their truth? What are some of those signs? Most of us are. Most of us are playing these childhood wounds out until we hit that point where 
we then consciously play them out and work on them. And that's the distinction there is that it's sort of always happening in subtle or really dramatic forms. And it's more about having the awareness because what we learn in our childhood or the conditioning that we receive is sort of our roadmap for how to relate and how much we believe we need to guard our hearts or how defended our ego is. And so when we're in relationship and we're experiencing a repetitive pattern where the same story continues to play out over and over again, not even the way that the story looks, but the core emotional theme that's something that I talk about a lot in my book is that the pattern could look different from the outside, but there's always a core emotional theme. And in that core emotional theme, we'll see things like, I don't feel like I'm good enough. People always leave me. I don't feel safe. I can't trust love, that kind of thing. And so when we have these things coming up over and over and over again in our relationships, and then we're responding with conflict with defensiveness, with guardedness. That's how we know that we're in a pattern that we've learned from childhood. And especially for those of us who had a tumultuous upbringing, for those of us who maybe experienced a lot of betrayal from our caregivers or abandonment or pain, we will find it especially difficult to trust. We'll find it especially difficult to be vulnerable and to reveal our hearts in moments of conflict. So we're much more likely to fight and defend or blame or run or avoid than we would be to just lean in and say, hey, this hurt my feelings or hey, you know, I want to do a check-in. And so those things take a lot of practice. So we can always recognize that our wounds are influencing our present day reality, but we have to actually work on that in the relationship as well because it's not the relationship that's the problem it's usually us that's the problem yeah there was this one part in the book where you're referencing your uh, relationship now with your partner and kind of this um, anxious avoidant dynamic between the two of you and you know it was interesting even when you were talking about it there was an aspect for even myself I was like hmm <laughs> I think there's a part of me that still has some little thing there. So let's just talk about that, how you took yourself out of that dynamic for a moment and felt your feelings. What is the process that you find yourself in when you notice, oh, trigger, actually not about what's going on in this moment. This is my story. This is my ego structure. What can someone do instead of playing out the same dynamics with their partner again and again? One of the things that I talk about a lot in my programs and in my book too is just finding that capacity to pause for a moment and tune into your body and ask, does this feel familiar? How familiar is this thought pattern, this feeling of not being seen or not being loved? When it feels familiar usually that's because there's story attached to it. And it's also about the energetic charge. How much energy are we experiencing when we're triggered by this experience? Like when our partner does something that bothers us or rubs us the wrong way, it's, it's normal to be irritated or to have a reaction sometimes. But when we're having these explosive reactions or when the reaction is so intense or we're just so convinced that they 
are doing this on purpose or that they want to hurt us or we're so convinced that they're not being loving towards us or that they, you know, they have it out for us. That's usually coming from a wound. When we no longer have space for their reality and it becomes very self-centered, we're in our inner child. Because think about it, a child is self-centered. It is all about them. They're not here to take care of us. We're here to take care of them. That's how it's supposed to be. And so when we're in our child self, we become completely self-absorbed and we lose the ability to have perspective or consideration for our partners. And so when we're in that, we know, okay, this is likely in, in some form, a childhood wound, wound rearing its head. And it's not that we need to shame ourselves for that or that we shouldn't be having that experience. But the awareness allows us to ask, okay, well, what do I actually need right now? Like truly, not what am I demanding from this wounded place, but what do I really need? And how responsible am I making my partner for that versus how much of that can I take responsibility for? And it's often both. I don't really subscribe to the idea that in a lot of these conscious relationship circles that, you know, our partner isn't responsible for any of our feelings and that they should never be responsible for helping us heal. I think it's a balance. Yeah, I do too. There's a woman I interviewed, Krista Luminary, who's done this work for years. She really talks about the rewiring of each other's brains together if we're in a conscious relationship, like even to acknowledge, okay, I'm having this reaction. I know it's not about you, but my body's feeling like this. And well, here's a tricky part. If we have a partner that continues to just do the same behavior versus change, it's very hard to probably heal within that dynamic. For sure. You have to have a willing partner. There's no doubt about it. That said, you have to do the work too, and you can't wait. So I see a lot of people say, well, I'm not doing it because they're not doing it. But the only way you're going to know if this relationship is going to move forward or not and be clear and be sure is if you just do the work as much as you can and you heal and you step up and you embody the truth and you lead with love and the truth will reveal itself and either your partner will step up or they will step out and either way you are in a better place for it and so we really have to take responsibility for our own path by stepping onto it regardless of what other people around us are doing but then it's also knowing you know if we have a willing partner it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes it's going to be really difficult and really painful and all your stuff will probably come up when it is the right person because you're finally safe. So you're finally feeling it all, but there are tools and there are ways for you to move through it. And if you're committed, that relationship can transform into such a beautiful container to thrive in. So in your book, you're really talking about the coming home to self, um, identifying the child wounds, then learning how to like be in your body, allow all those wounds to be felt, (laughs) healed. Sounds so simple, but can be intense. Watching your thoughts, knowing what thought is true, what is not true, what's part of the story, then choosing. And I'm curious how this is playing out in motherhood. Are you noticing anything in motherhood that also is some of this like, oh, here's this child wound coming up in this dynamic as a mother. Are you noticing the same thing beyond your partnership that 
even in motherhood, these, these things show up and then how to work with them. You know, surprisingly, I'm not having my own childhood wounds arise. I feel like I've done just so much preparation for this. Like every medicine ceremony I ever had when I was having a hard time, one of my guides would come in and she would say, are you going to let your daughter do this? Are you going to run away from this work so that your daughter has to do it? I knew I was having a daughter 10 years before I had her. And every hard medicine ceremony, I was reminded that this work was for her. So I really did prepare. So a lot of that stuff has been cleared. Not all of it, of course. I have no idea what's coming. I'm very fresh to this, right? And I'm already seeing that you just don't know what's going to come until you initiate. One of the things that's really surprised me about this journey into motherhood is the amount of grief that I feel every single day. So much grief for all the children that are hurting, so much grief for all of the babies who weren't loved, and so much grief for my mother. That's the thing that really surprised me is that I feel that I'm grieving for her inner child now. Now that I actually know on a sensory level what it's like to be a mother to this vulnerable, precious being gifted from spirit who relies entirely on me to care for her body, to make sure she's safe, to make sure she feels okay in this world, to then imagine my own mother not having that, it has really broken me open. And I always felt empathy and I always felt grief and pain for her, but this is a whole other level that I just didn't expect. That's a new layer that I'm working through, is just feeling that grief. I can identify with that as well because, you know, my mother's that much older than your mother. And I look back at the time when there was even much more suppression and oppression of the feminine voice of a woman's even ability to be out of a power dynamic around finances back then, you know, that you mentioned in your book, the spinster, right? The spinster was someone who was able to provide for themselves and not actually have to marry for someone to take care of them. And it was actually similar to like the word witch, which meant wise woman. It got kind of turned around on its head and it became a negative. But I look back at my mother now, who's changed so much. And I think like, what a shame that she actually didn't have the opportunity to do some of this deep healing work. And now she's asking now, she's asking for medicine and uh, just seeing all the ways that her culture didn't make space for these dialogues. Yeah. And it's beautiful to see people of the older generations now waking up. My husband's mom started doing Buddhist meditations and going to retreats and, you know, doing all of this spiritual work. She's in her seventies and it's incredible. And it's, that's the thing. It's never too late and there's no timeline. We get to choose our path now. We maybe didn't always. I'm curious also about the grief because my daughter just had a baby. So he is a month behind your little one. And I do notice, like she mentioned, there's also some grief of losing aspects of her life, her own independence, uh, you know, that there's, there's grief about so many things. Do you feel that at all? I feel so much grief about the impermanence of this experience. I felt that the grieving of my old self happened so much for me in pregnancy. And I think, I don't know if I'm older than your daughter, but... 
How old are you? 35? I'm 35. Yeah, she's a little bit younger. I think that could contribute as well, right? Because I waited so long. Like my husband and I were together for over seven years before we finally decided to have a family. And I have lived a lot. Obviously, I've lived many lives already. And so I really felt so ready. We planned this so divinely that by the time she was here, I was ready. But in pregnancy, that's when I was going through that. And so I think for some of us, it's just different timing. Some of us experience it in pregnancy, others experience it in postpartum. This loss of the maiden self and knowing that life will never be the same. For me, it's been this deep sadness about the impermanence, you know, watching my daughter grow. I remember staying up all night with her for the first six to eight weeks. She wasn't sleeping very much, of course, and we were nursing all night. And I'd be holding her in my arms and then I would just have this existential experience all of a sudden where I felt like the whole world stopped. And then I would just zoom out and see her as an older woman and see my death and I would just bawl my eyes out. And it was so, this is why it's such a psychedelic journey, you know, these, these deep experiences and I would wish to freeze time and I still do because it's just so special I remember that just like trying so hard to penetrate the moment and freeze it in my mind. Yeah. Like let this be forever. Let me just expand this. How present can I be in it? Almost in that presence, you're losing presence because you're trying to be so present, but it's just one of those things, you know, you can't hold on to it. And that is what makes it special. And so even in those moments where I'm saying, I wish I could freeze time. I know that if I could, I wouldn't be getting the medicine that I'm getting. It's so all of the things, you know, with deep love and with deep joy comes deep grief. And and on the other side of love is loss. And that is just the human experience. And so that's why I feel that it's such a devotional path because it's the only path where we sign up to love a being more than our hearts could ever possibly love. And we sign up to care forever for this being who isn't here to do the same. They, they love us, but they're here to move away from us. They're here to find their wings and fly and go out into the world and have new experiences. And our tether to them is so strong. And we're like, hey, I'm signing up for that. I'm signing up to break my own heart. Right. Even, you know, it's interesting you say that my daughter and her husband came to live here with me for five months while they had the baby. And so like every morning, they just plop them in my bed with me and I cuddle and just this time with them. And it's so interesting what you're just talking about. So they were here and then, you know, and they moved back. It's only 20 minutes away. But still, I had a reflection one night at dinner with a friend. I said, you know, being a mother is like, whoa, this this mother pain sometimes of you, you nurture, you give everything. And not to say in a self-abandonment way, but just that love that you're speaking of. And then they're there to fly. They're there to go. And sometimes there is that vortex after they've left. You're like, whoa, okay. You're reorienting to life again without them here. Or that's very interesting. And it goes fast. What a beautiful process that you're in. Yeah, it, it is. It's so beautiful. I'm so grateful for it. And uh, I'm learning so much, you know, just all of those moments, all of those quiet nights, all of those 
hours in the forest holding her while she's napping. She's been a contact sleeper since she was born. So just holding her all the time, nursing all the time and just receive so much wisdom from that. And your partner works from home too? Do you both? Yeah. Yeah. We both fortunately work from home. He runs a men's work and podcast as well. And uh, so we are both home, but of course it's different. Any stickiness that it created, any kind of new, like, oh, hadn't expected this within our relationship. Oh, totally. So what would you, yeah, what would you say there? You know, I was just talking to a girlfriend who just had a, a baby a few months ago as well. And none of us expect it to happen if our partnership is in a really great place, right? But there is just this resentment that I find, like with every woman that I talk to, there's this resentment towards our partner, no matter how much they're giving, no matter how much they're showing up, because it feels a little isolating. Like there's no way they could understand the intensity that we're going through. Like this being was grown and came through our body. We're nourishing this being with our body. They need us all the time. Whereas they can just kind of go off and go and do whatever, you know, like he's gone away for multiple weekends already. You know, he went and ran a men's retreat this last week. And I love that. And I'm so happy for him. And I also have moments of resentment. My daughter is saying the same thing. And then at one point she said, you know, I never thought this would be Jake and I. I never thought this, we'd actually be in this here. And the same thing, like she'll speak to her friends and there is this deep kind of you know, my friends are definitely older and they talk about the invisible work of women, the, you know, emotional load that mothers take on in a family and things like that. And hopefully that will be different for your generation, that there will be more of a balancing of that. But it is interesting that there is that resentment still. But what has your kind of, how have you handled it and how have you navigated that individually and then as a couple? You know, it's been sticky. We've had our moments. There's been bumps. I won't say it's been perfect. I I was just, me and my friend were talking the other day and we're both like, wow, we've had to apologize a lot in the last little while, you know, because of just the hormones and everything. It's tough, you know, no sleep. You know, he was sleeping through the night because there's no reason for both of us to be up all night exhausted. And so he'd be slept and I was like running on two hours because I'm nursing exclusively. I didn't want to bottle feed or like pump. So I'm just up and there's just been a lot of moments where I've just not been my best self, you know, just been snappy or grumpy or critical. And all I can do is give myself grace in those moments. And he gets it and he understands as much as he can. And we've both just had to acknowledge that this is a temporary phase that we're in and do our best to just come back to love and to support each other. And, you know, we haven't had a lot of time to connect there's not a lot of time right now. And so also just accepting that this is how things are right now. And it's not always going to be that way. And it's just like motherhood, you know, everything changes. And I don't want to wish any of these phases away because before I know it, they're going to be over. And so I'm just being in it, you know, in the exhaustion or in the discomfort or, you know, whatever it is, knowing that this is just a moment in time, really. And so that has helped us is just really holding on to presence. One of my friends told me that it's the first eight months of a new child's life are the worst for marriages. It's the least marital satisfaction is the first eight months 
it's just a hard time. I think it's an, especially probably for the first child, because there's such a change happening in the relationship. I'll have to come back when we have our second and let you know, but it's a big change. You know, your relationship is no longer about you guys. It's about this little being for now. So based on your own work, your book, how will you raise your daughter? Because you're really speaking in the book about the early wounding. And I would say one of the biggest things that probably generationally, thankfully, is changing was this idea of kind of stuffing emotions, not making space for them. I see a lot of clients that are, you know, once they're in the medicine, realize they had parents that I I almost call it like performative, where they earned their love. Uh, wasn't necessarily felt to be unconditional because they had to be all these things. What are some of the guidelines that you have based on your own work with parenting now? I really love the concept of gentle parenting, which really to me is just rooted in connection and respect. So it's not about using punishment. It's not about using reward. And it's about providing natural consequences for what happens if you don't do something. So instead of, if you don't do this, I'm sending you to your room. Or if you don't do this, I'm taking something away from you. It's helping your child to learn what would actually happen if you make that choice naturally in your environment or to your body. And of course there's constraints, right? There's things where it's just a non-negotiable. I'm here to protect your body or I'm here to help keep your body safe. So we have to do this thing. So there are boundaries, but it's, not so restrictive in terms of it's about me giving you rules to follow. It's about you learning how the world works. And when we're adults, when we make a mistake, there's a natural consequence. But nobody's sending us to our rooms or isolating us or telling us that we can't call our friends for the next week. That would never happen. So why on earth would we do that to our kids? And so we're we're following this practice of really just respecting them as a human being and helping them learn how to be in the world and knowing that connection and nervous system development relies on security. So a lot of physical contact, we're co-sleeping, and we're just letting her be fully a baby. We're not expecting independence. You know, I'm not expecting her to learn how to sleep faster. I'm not trying to rush her in any way. And I'm just letting her have her time and holding her as much as I can. Interesting. Did you feel any pushback? Because I know my daughter's taking the same approach. And, you know, it was interesting, you know, just different people, different people that give unsolicited advice to mothers. She felt definitely some pushback on that. Like, you need to sleep train them. You need to do this. Did you feel that or no? No. I haven't felt any, I see it, I'm advertised it, but I've never felt any pressure. I'm also a pretty stubborn individual, right? So I've never felt any pressure to do anything other than what I'm doing. I've experienced judgment, but that's not mine. It's not mine to take on. And I I also just, I don't care because to me, I know what's right for my daughter. And I know that what's right for us as human beings is to be nurtured and to be held. And I know Gabor Mate even talks about this a lot, is that the more that we love our children and the more that we nurture them, the more that we hold them, the more independent they will be later on. It's not the way that we were told, you know, that you have to teach your child independence. No, you love them into them, 
to their independence. That's so beautiful. And I love what you're saying because even, you know, you called it like stubbornness. And I would say like, you know, your guidelines, you are comfortable with what your truth is as a mother and someone else's judgment is their own. Yeah, we have to trust ourselves. And that's the made into mother journey is stepping into our power because we need to have that power and that clarity to make decisions to protect our children and to, to protect our family. And we can't do that from a place of people pleasing or caring what other people think. No, there was something in your book that I thought was interesting about, right, when a relationship is, we're looking for a source of our approval or to fill a craving or a source of our energy or to validate us. And there's where it comes in even as a mother, when you are making the choices to protect your child and you might be getting pushback culturally or familiarly, if you can get those things from yourself or your partner. And yeah, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I know you have a baby to get to and uh, so grateful for this book that you've written. I'm going to definitely pass this along. And how can people reach you to do uh, to hear about your work? Has your work moved into motherhood and staying in the relationship? Where, where are you now and what, what are you offering? Uh, I'm still offering all of the relationship work. My latest uh, program is called Freedom from Relationship Anxiety. So it's a lot of nervous system work. And you can learn about that at risingwoman.com slash programs. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram at Shalina Ayana. And uh, my book is available everywhere the books are sold. If you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious, and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. And I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at thepsychedelicmom. And remember, you are the medicine.